Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. Amen. All right. We are um, continuing through our series of the seven signs of Jesus recorded by the beloved disciple John. Through each, we are provided a glimpse into the effects of the fall in our world, as well as the work of Jesus to produce this great reversal. It's kind of a theme, a thread that we've traced throughout uh, the miracles of John thus far. Now, we're going to spend our time today, as you have probably already realized in light of our reading, in John chapter 6. And so if you want to go ahead and turn there, um, this would be an appropriate time while I review where we have been over the past few weeks as we trace these seven signs uh, in this particular gospel. In John chapter 2, we see Jesus display his intention to implement a new covenant. All right, as he, as he fulfills through his life and his death the old, he removes the opportunity for shame for this family, celebrating this event that so beautifully displays his love for the church, i.e. a wedding, as he provides good wine from purification cisterns, these big jars, resulting an ongoing celebration made distinct by the quality of the wine that Jesus provides. It's better, it's pure, and it's distinct from what had so oftentimes been provided in similar circumstances. In John chapter 4, as we follow the progression, Jesus heals the official son by the power of his word. The official displays faith in Jesus's ability to work, a work that is proven genuine as he begins making his way home and and encounters his servants who provide eyewitness testimony that the boy had in fact been brought from the brink of death and is now well. All of this transpiring At the very time in which Jesus promised that he would indeed live. That's the promise of John chapter 4. A promise that would only blossom as the man's entire family would express faith that results not simply in physical life, but in spiritual life. Right, Faith that results not simply in, in spiritual life, but eternal life. Right, That is the, the quality of our, our faith. That is the content. That is the object. That is the outcome and the benefit of our faith. Eternal life and, and forgiveness. In John 5, the lame man at the pool in Bethesda, again, healed by Jesus. We surveyed his condition. We took some time to chat around that last week, observing his, his hopelessness and observing his, his helplessness. And yet Jesus displays what? Well, he displays compassion. Right, he, displays, he displays mercy for the most broken, creating this, this moment an opportunity, right? And an opportunity for celebration of everything that the festival season and Sabbath were intended to accomplish. Rest in Jesus and a transcendent hope for the world. An opportunity that is rejected by the people as their hearts are hardened by his work. And now... We come into John chapter 6 and Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, a sign that takes place really in two parts, right? Because we have the event of the first 15 verses, which Courtney read for us this morning, followed by the miracle of Jesus walking on water and then the explanation of Jesus's feeding in verses 22 through 59. And so we're gonna tackle this thing in two parts this morning. We heard a portion of that, which we're going to seek to unpack over our next few minutes together just a few moments ago, but we're going to skip over um, the walking on water portion as we're going to find ourselves there next week. And we're going to look ahead to Jesus's explanation 
of the miracle that we observe in the first 15 verses. We went not too terribly long ago through the gospel of Mark. And in Mark, we observed what is oftentimes referred to as the marking sandwich, right? And here's what this looks like, okay? It's essentially in, in Mark's style of writing, he would, he would say something, okay? And then he would say something else. And then he would say something about the first something. Did you guys follow that? Right, this is what we observe in Mark's writing style. It feels a little bit as though John is, is taking a note here. As he, as he speaks, right, as he writes, recording the events of the first 15 verses, followed by this, this next sign, followed by Jesus' explanation of the first sign. So we're going to take the bread today, okay? And we're going to dive into the meat next week. So there you go. Shameless plug for next week. Jesus walks on water and we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about that as well. Our main idea this morning is as follows. This is going to serve to, to drive our time. This is what uh, we desire to, to gather and to grow in an understanding of from that which we're going to observe in John chapter 6 this morning. The word of God satisfies in a way... In which the things of the world will not. Super simple, super short, right? The word of God satisfies in a way in which the things of this world will not. Bless you. This is our main idea, and I think, right, that, that uh, what we're going to read over the course of our next few minutes together is going to drive our hearts towards a, a very specific point of transformation. I think that there's this, this transformational intent, if you will, from what we're going to read in John chapter 6, and that is... Again, as follows. Now, this is not going to be on the screen. We'll have a, a portion of it for you at the end. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to just listen. Okay? You're going to have an opportunity to write this down. And you know, I mean, praise God. Like, we are a note-taking church. We are a, a Bible-open, like, loving God's Word type of, of church. But now, I'm going to ask you not to take notes. Okay? I want you to just listen to this. And I want, us to, I want us to begin to wrap our arms around the transformation that God desires within the hearts of, of people as we lean into this beautiful sign in John chapter 6. I think that God is desiring us to enjoy Jesus. I think he, he wants to transform our hearts in a way that we would genuinely and authentically love Jesus. That we would love Jesus and that we would feast on the word. That we would mine for truth. That we would dig for it. That we would labor after it. And serve it to other people. Understanding. Right, that the things of this world will not fill in the way that it will. It's a difficult call. We're going to see that here in John chapter 6. It's a, a call that we observe in this passage that is met with confusion and even rejection. And yet still, we will come out on the other side having observed God's faithfulness to strengthen and affirm faith in Jesus for some. John 6, we're confronted with the beauty of Christ. We're called to feast on Christ, to savor Christ, to enjoy Christ, to follow Christ. A difficult message, but one that does encourage the hearts of God's people. So let's look together at John 6. The first five verses serve to set the stage for us. The first five verses of John chapter 6 establish the season of the sign that is during Passover. So one question that we might ask as good Bible readers, which again, right, asking questions as we work our way through God's word is always encouraged, is this. What is Passover all about? Last week, we spent a ton of time distinguishing the feast of 
from John 5 from this feast in John chapter 6. Again, some time has likely passed, and now it is a very familiar season for God's people and those who perhaps even have some semblance of Old Testament like knowledge and understanding. Or you may be in this room this morning, you're like, I'm not a Christian, but I have heard of and about Passover before, right? I've seen Charleston Heston like play this whole thing out. The Ten Commandments, right? So what is Passover? Well, our friends at Ligonier help us out as they write the following. Passover was established when God rescued his people Israel from Egyptian slavery. And so we are seeing this feast being observed in the community that God's people have been observing for a very long time. We're going back and we're connecting the thread to Exodus. After nine plagues did not move the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. I'm going to give you a couple of points of reference. This is Exodus chapter 7 through 10 for those who might be interested later in going back and, and, and reading through. The Almighty sent one final plague that provoked the king of Egypt to relent temporarily and to free the Israelites. This plague... Well, it was the death of all of Egypt's firstborn sons. This is in Exodus chapter 11. And it gave a short window in which to escape. Thus, the meal preceding it had to be something that could be eaten quickly. Unleavened unleavened bread was essential to the Passover as the people had no time to wait for the dough to rise if they were to get away. Deuteronomy chapter 16 helps us to see this. Now, in addition to the food, the blood of the Passover lamb was also a part of the feast. Though the people did not consume the blood, they did spread it on their doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over. Thus, Passover. So that the angel of death would pass over their households, Exodus chapter 12. And in doing so, right, the Israelites marked themselves off as God's people and thus experienced rescue, salvation from his wrath. This is what's being remembered. This is what's being celebrated as Jesus again finds himself in this region. It's during the observance of this this feast that Jesus comes back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he sits down in verse 2 before this really large crowd posing a question to his friend Philip in verse 5. So we see the landscape, don't we? Like we understand what's going on. Jesus is here and there is a crowd of people following after Jesus. There's a lot of interest in Jesus. We're not altogether unfamiliar with this, even in our own context. Like we understand that there is this this interest in the person of Jesus and his work. Now we fall short oftentimes in submission to his word, but it's not hard to, to go out into the world and find people who are interested in Jesus. Perhaps you are here this morning as one interested in Jesus. The question that Jesus poses to Philip in verse 5 is as follows. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? A really interesting question, given that we're working with like a handful of guys here. Right with with not a lot in terms of of like worldly possession at their disposal. A really interesting question that Jesus says in verse six is intended to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus is is setting is setting Philip up here. Okay, Jesus is setting his friends up and he's, he's setting you and I up for something. So we begin to, to lean in and we are a bit more interested. Already we know that there is more to what is going on here. Jesus testing his listeners, testing Philip and the first recipients of John's gospel. A test that centers around this question. Here's the question, right? 
where will the substance for the feeding of these people come from? What are we going to give them? How are we going to nourish them? How are we going to provide for them? Look with me at verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get just a little bit. Verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. A lunchable, if you will. But what are they for so many? Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down. About 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And so there's this contrast observable in these first few verses, right? There's this tension in that, okay, everything that we have is not capable of securing enough food to provide everyone with even a little bit. Jesus says, okay, um, I'm about to work this problem out. Okay, and so you guys kind of watch this, observe this. Everyone takes after Jesus has blessed and broken, they eat and they eat, verse 11, as much as they wanted. And so it's not a little, but it's, it's as much. There's this filling that takes place. Verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples to gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Now, that's a really interesting statement that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. But let's close it out, round it off by looking at verses 13 and 14 as well. So they gathered up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This is the scene, okay? This is the, the scene from which we will discuss a series of realities that are informed by the text. And it begins with the compassionate heart of Christ. I want us to, to lean in and I want us to focus on the compassionate heart of Christ. Jesus does what? Well, he, he observes the people. Jesus, super observant, <laughs> right? Super connected, super aware, identifies a physical need and he meets it. But let's be clear, right? John's explanation of this sign, which takes up a majority of the space within this passage, makes it abundantly clear that the sign itself is not the primary point. Although it does usher in cause for onlookers and readers to connect back to something that God has already said about the Messiah that was to come. Okay, Jesus and, and his work in these first few verses to display his compassionate heart and to meet the physical needs of the masses is connecting back with an earlier truth presented in God's word that shines a spotlight on who Jesus is. Now, again, remember what we said, the crowd gathering around Jesus supports this idea that there is still a lot of interest around Jesus. Okay, there's a shift that takes place in chapter five where people become less interested and more intent on killing Jesus. But there is still a lot of interest around Jesus. And as a result, as Jesus makes his way into the, the countryside, this crowd, this throng of people follow and descend. Jesus has compassion on them and he feeds them. And in doing so, again, he is saying this, be not so much interested in, uh, in the, the physical feeding that is to proceed, but let's connect this truth back with what God is accomplishing in redemptive history. We're considering the salvation story as a whole here, okay? This is the salvation story as a, as a whole. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 23, we read the following. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David. 
and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. In Christ, we are seeing a better king. We're seeing a, a better king. This could not be unpacked more clearly than where we observe it from the message of Peter on the day of Pentecost, where he says, David has seen decay. Right, David, David died and his remains are still here. And yet there is a better one whom you crucified, whose body has not seen decay because of the glorious hope of the resurrection. The truer and, and better shepherd who feeds the people, not just physical food, but spiritual food who steps down into his creation to act as the good shepherd to protect his his flock and to call them to himself. Jesus is ushering in a new and better kingdom. In verse five, he presents a question that highlights a problem that will enable him to connect himself with the uh, the prophecy of Ezekiel as the shepherd of the people who will indeed meet their need. This leads us from the compassionate heart of Christ into the divine work of Christ. So we begin with this this understanding of the heart of Christ, which in turn exposits, it exposes, it exegetes for us the heart of God. If we want to know what the heart of God looks like, we we can grow in understanding as we lean into the heart of Jesus, observable in the first five verses of John chapter six. And then there is this, this transition, right? He is compassionate, but he is also divine. Verse six, Jesus knows exactly what he is going to do. A boy within the crowd with a small lunch is identified. His his lunch is confiscated and multiplied to feed the five to 10,000 people who are present. This is a much larger crowd than is initially identified here in John chapter six, two loaves of bread and five fish. The people are, are filled, at which point Jesus instructs his disciples to collect, collect what is left so that, verse 12, nothing would be lost. Now, we identified that statement in the beginning. Can we go on to point two? Rotate through us to the next one, Josh. There we go. Just to keep us all on the same page. We identified the statement in verse 12 as we, as we began. We singled it out and said, hold on to this. We're going to talk a little bit more about it as we progress. And that is the call, right? Collect so that nothing would be lost. And so what does Jesus' instruction to his friends to collect the leftovers indicate? What is this all about? Why? Is this primarily, is this solely a stewardship issue, right? Let's not be wasteful, right? collect the multiplied bread and and fish? I think it's a stewardship issue, but I don't think it's a stewardship issue in the way that we might think. Okay, I think that Jesus is, is most interested in his word and work not being lost. I don't know that we're to to see this so much as a stewardship of substance, right? Material like bread and, and fish as much as a stewardship of knowledge and understanding. For the friends of Jesus, there is a a deeper understanding, this divine realization that they are being called into as it relates to the identity of Jesus as they gather the leftover elements. Don't miss this, right? Jesus seems to say, in addition, there is opportunity for people throughout the ages to feast on the truth of the person of Jesus so that nothing may be lost, Let's say it this way, right? So that, so that we might benefit having this, this record of this miraculous sign. That none of the truth of who Jesus is, 
that none of the truth of, of, of Jesus's divine attributes and his compassionate heart and his work would be lost. Collect this so that we don't lose this, right? So that there is an account so that you are drawn into this knowledge of Jesus, right? Uh, disciples, like first readers, you and I in this room, Understanding who he is, understanding his heart, understanding the way that he works, understanding the transformational intent of John chapter 6. The people, verse 14, see what Jesus has done. They see him as a powerful prophet, but there is a distinction between this powerful prophet and the Messiah. Right? They recognize something distinct and something unique within Jesus. But they stop just south of seeing him and identifying him and embracing him as the Christ. This is a distinction that is going to continue to be unpacked as we work our way through this passage. They desire to make him king, but we find that Jesus is uninterested. Why? Well, because this is not the way. Right? This, is not, this is not the way that Jesus is to be crowned king. It is only through suffering. It is only through death that Jesus would inherit this crown. Right? The, divine, the divine king, capable of multiplication to satisfy the hungry masses, rejects their efforts to crown him, choosing instead to focus his efforts on saving them. It's not so much about temporal joy and fulfillment and satisfaction, but it's about a, this eternal realm. It's about, it's about this eternal economy by which God functions and, and operates. This is an understanding that comes out in Jesus's explanation. Now we're going to skip over verses 16 through 21. Jesus's movement. Okay, Jesus' movement to the other side of the Sea of Galilee until next week. And we're going to pick up in verses 22 through 71, where Jesus is going to offer an explanation of the true meaning behind this miracle. And so this is incredible. Jesus has just done something miraculous, a sign that supports his divinity. And now he moves into this, this explanation portion, transitioning you and I, into our third observation, the underlying message of Christ. Look with me at verse 35, 25, I'm sorry, verse 25. When they, that being the crowds of earlier verses, found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, again, there's a distinction, right? There's a contrast that's being drawn out. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which, is the, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him... For on him, God the Father has set his seal. He is identified. He is publicly supported and affirmed the person of Jesus. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What a stellar question. What a surprising answer. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Man, that is not what the people are expecting. The miracle of multiplication and feeding of John 6 centers on what? We receive our answer here in verse 28 and 29. It centers on belief. Right? What is Jesus' desire for those looking on? Well, it is to take hold of eternal life. It is to be made alive. It is to be fed not so much or primarily physically, but to be fed spiritually. It's 
take hold of eternal life that comes through belief in Jesus as the ultimate shepherd of Ezekiel chapter 34. Not only that, but Jesus calls those listening in to work to understand. To work to understand. He's not emphasizing intellect for the purpose of intellect, but instead a desire to know what is true and to mine for it. There is this this encouragement for you and I as we sit in this room. There's this informing for you and I as we sit in this room as to how we approach the scriptures, how we approach God's word, how we do the work. What does he say, man? He says, he says, don't work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will, will give to you work, labor, minds, this illustration almost of, of, of digging, right? Anybody ever seen, um, it's the stupidest movie ever, right? Um, Zoolander. Anybody ever seen Zoolander before? Okay. You didn't expect us John 6 Zoolander, right? It's a smooth transition. In um, in the movie, right? You have uh, you have Derek Zoolander, right? Um, and he like loses his job. It's been a while, okay. So be patient with me. Um, but he ends up like going and working with his dad and brothers in the mine, doesn't he? Right? Like he's 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 mining, right? You guys familiar with this picture, right? Um, and he, he's putting in serious work. You know, he's Kayla loves this. And afterwards, right, you get, you, he's just working. There's no like real indication as to how much time has passed, but you see him in like the pub, right, with his dad and his brothers. And he's, you know, uh, the famous line is like, I think I got the black lung pop. Like that's the line, right? Like, and what does he say? He's like, you've been in the mine for a day, Derek, right? Like that's the, that's kind of the, the jab, right? Man, I think there is this encouragement that we see here, right? There's this shaping and informing of what it looks like for us to, as God's people, mine the word, right? To, to, to work and to, and to labor in the word, to seek understanding, growing in this, in this knowledge of the heart of God and his work in the world to glorify Christ and to save a people unto himself. Work labor, dig to know the word, right? The miracle of multiplication is intended to stir hearts towards belief in Jesus as who? Well, as the son of God. It's not about seeking after Jesus to satisfy the stomach or the flesh. These comforts are fleeting as we would all in this room attest to. They won't last. They won't satisfy Instead, look to and take joy, find satisfaction in Jesus. That's the message of John 6. The miracle of the multiplication, the people feed and are filled and a very short period of time passes and they are seeking after Jesus yet again because they had eaten their fill and there is this this rumbling taking place, right? There's a desire for, for earthly satisfaction yet again. Jesus says, this is not to satisfy. This will not ultimately, this will not ultimately fill. Look to and take joy in me. Now, that could not be more clear, right? In response, this is incredible. <laughs> like it's, it's a laughable, you have to laugh to keep from crying. The people ask for a sign. In verse 30, they said to him, then what, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Verse 31, our fathers, well, they ate the manna in the wilderness. That is, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What a silly, silly question. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it was my father 
who gives you the true bread from heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Manna in the wilderness is a shadow. It's it's a point along the way in which, again, God displays power and provision, but it all is to point us to Christ. Verse 34, we're catching the distinction. We understand, okay? So, sir, give us this bread, like all the time, always. To which Jesus says in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven, the incarnation, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but instead raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father. Boil it down for us, Jesus. <laughs> I boil it down in its, most, in its most simple of terms. Okay, I will, Jesus says. <laughs> for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I, Jesus says, will raise him up on the last day. What does Jesus do here? Well, he identifies himself. He, He identifies himself as the bread that eternally buffers one's hunger pains. Right, this, this drink that eternally satisfies our thirst. Are we okay? Are we all together? The one who, who keeps those who come to him, right, the, the heart of God to keep those who come to him as opposed to casting them out. The one who submits himself perfectly to the will of the father in all the ways that we fail sent to die in the place of sinners only to rise from the dead so that he might one day on that last day raise everyone and everything else up as well. News that is so classically met with grumbling from the people. No matter, Jesus says. Right? It, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. The Father, verse 44, will draw whom he wills. His grace is irresistible. Right? It, is, it is beautiful. A gift to dying men and women in need of being, of being brought to life. Verse 47. Truly, truly, listen up, right? I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. If you look at this portion that we've read, the first 15 verses, and then this explanation that follows, I want to say that it's like 28 times there's, there's emphasis on bread or manna or food. Like this, it, it sounds like we're just reading the same verses over and over again, doesn't it? Like, I mean, it's just the same content. Why? Because we need the same content again and again and again. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And what happened to them? You want that? No, they died. They died. This, all of this, right? Is the bread that comes down from heaven. So that one may eat of it and not die. 
Contrast, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What is Jesus pointing towards here? His crucifixion, right? He's pointing towards his his life being laid down, being given Right, the, the means by which he will acquire the crown. The people say, we will take you and we will make you king. And Jesus says, no, you won't. <laughs> no, you won't. I am king and I will be crowned. But it will come at a incredible cost. Why? Well, because... We are sinful, we are broken, and we are fallen. And there is this righteous requirement for this promise of eternal life to be taken hold of, to be captured, and to be experienced. And it's the spilt blood of Jesus. These are the words of the Messiah. These are the words of our King Jesus who comes in power to speak life, electing to lay his down so that in him we might be risen up. Fourth observation. We're drawing to a conclusion, so hang with me. The insurmountable Christ. Look with me at verse 60. What a survey. What a survey of John 6. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, no kidding, right? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. Why would you seek to satisfy the flesh when the flesh is of zero help, no help at all? The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life, verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father, because this is too hard. This is too difficult. This is too informative. (laughs) Or you can't handle seeing yourself this way. It requires a work of grace. Verse 66, after this, now listen, remember when we start, it is like people are like, like high-fiving and dapping and like loving on Jesus, right? Jesus feeds their stomachs and then he explains the purpose behind the sign. And as a result, verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The after effects of the, this is a hard teaching statement in verse 60. We see the exclusivity of Christ. The exclusivity of Christ and the hope for satisfaction and eternal life in him is challenging in that it strips the natural man of any hope of things of this world accomplishing the same purpose. It strips us of our hope of accomplishing in and of ourselves this same purpose. Jesus is the soul. He is the lone satisfying hope for human existence to follow Jesus, to feast on Jesus. And his authoritative word will, as we observe from John 6, produce division. There are those who will walk away and there are those who will respond as Peter in verse 68. And so here's a, just a, a, a hair of encouragement as we kind of turn the corner here. Where are you? Where do we find ourselves in terms of response to the authoritative, confrontational, exclusive words of Jesus? Listen to what, listen to what Peter says. In verse 68, 
So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? The crowd is thinning at this point. Like it's a revolving door. Anybody want to get in on this? Simon Peter answered him and said the following. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where am I supposed to go? Like where, where, where else is there to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, not simply a prophet, but one that is altogether different. Allow me to summarize as we consider the totality of John 6. On whom else shall we feed? On whom else shall we feed is the response of Peter. Nothing but you will sustain, right? Nothing but you gazing upon Jesus, nothing but you will satisfy us. Nothing but you will fill us. Jesus is the only hope for dying men. Jesus is the only hope for dying women, for this this indescribably glorious future of fellowship with him. Jesus is the only hope for hurting brothers and sisters, processing loss, experiencing difficulty in relationships, difficulty in their marriages, difficulty as they battle the desires of the flesh, striving for a knowledge from above as opposed to this knowledge from below. Let's revisit our main idea. How is John 6 cemented this this concept, this idea in our minds? That it is the word of God that satisfies in a way in which the things of this world will not. Survey your life. Survey your life. How is your, your satisfaction as you lean on the things of this world finding its fill? Well, it's not, right? It's not. The word of God satisfies. The world will not, but he certainly will. And so how do we respond to what we see here in John 6? Well, as a result, we by grace enjoy Jesus. We enjoy Jesus. We consume the word. Mining for truth and living mission as we serve it to others. Confident, right? Confident that the gospel will satisfy the soul. Confident that while rejection and confusion are a part of the story, God is faithful. God is faithful to what? Well, to to strengthen and affirm faith in Jesus for others. There's this realization, this cloud that settles upon the people of God in this room. And we realize, man, I can go nowhere else but to him. Jesus alone. Jesus alone satisfies us. The call of Jesus in John 6 is really really clear. It's really simple in terms of understanding. It's difficult in that it, it calls us to die to ourselves. Right? It calls us to die to the flesh, to crucify the flesh, and to and to live in the spirit. The call of Jesus in John 6 is to come to him, to come to Jesus. To come to him and then to to grow in our comprehension of what it looks like to feed on the living word. We're going to transition We're going to transition to the table, but as we do, there is this understanding that, I mean, this is a really clear text in terms of, of, of response, call out upon Christ, be made alive, feast on him, follow after Jesus. We're going to take part in just a moment in the Lord's Supper. We transition to the table, as we call it, each week. And we take of of the bread and the cup. And we remember Christ's 
crucified body and his spilt blood and all that it signifies and that we are forgiven, we are reconciled to God, we are enable and incapable in and of ourselves, but in him we find hope, we find assurance, we find refuge. We feed on Christ and we feed on his word. Confident as we come to the table that we will one day feast with Christ and with one another in this beautiful way in a world and an existence absent of, of sin and all of its all of its effects. I had a great conversation, very brief. She's not in here. She's serving in children's as she does so often, but with Audrey Clark this morning um, about the hope of the resurrection. And um, maybe it's just like a little bit of fall temp setting in outside that kind of gets us thinking about like holiday seasons and like awkward time around like the table with like family <laughs> and all the conversations that naturally arise, right? Man, isn't it great news that as we look ahead to the hope of the resurrection, there's this realization, there's this understanding that we will one day dine and all of the awkwardness that accompanies our gatherings will be, will be cast off. It'll be no more. We get a taste of that as we come to the table now, this morning. We come and we enjoy divine fellowship with God because we are indwelt by his spirit. We enjoy this fellowship, this sweet, sweet fellowship with one another around the gospel as we celebrate the finished work of Jesus. And so the call is this, to taste, right? To, To taste of the bread, to taste of the juice, to remember the work of Jesus, to remember the gospel and to long for with eager anticipation a future day as we live pilgrim lives here and now. Let us, let us feast on the word. Let us come and let us take of the table, remembering the, the words of Jesus and the hope, the hope of eternal life. Let me pray for us as we prepare to transition to the table. 